Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We are coming near the end. If you are like me, you can see the end of Matthew's gospel in your physical Bible in front of you. And what have we heard from the very beginning? That this is Jesus. This whole gospel has been devoted to the understanding that this is who Jesus is. He is the promised son of David and son of Abraham. He is the son of David, the promised Messiah, the one that the prophets predicted and foretold. He is the one, and he alone is the one who is fit to rule not only Jerusalem and not only over the Jews, but over the nations. But in his sovereignty, at this time, the king has not come to be served, but to serve. This high and glorious king, this one who is the prince of peace, the king of kings, the lord of lords, has humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross. For now, the king has suffered so that sinful men and women can be called heirs to the kingdom. And this is the son of Abraham. This is the one to whom those covenant promises were made that he would bless not only his children, but all the nations. How is it that in one man all of the earth can be blessed? It's through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who reconciles sinners to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And last week, as we looked kind of at the closing scene of the cross, we saw that we don't have to wonder whether any of that worked. We don't have to wait and wonder long into history to see whether the cross did exactly what God intended it to do. We see it in the moments that Jesus Christ breathes his last breath. What were some of the things we saw? We saw that the veil of the temple is torn in two. In the tabernacle first and later on in the temple, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The place where the glory of God dwelt in a physical way among his people. That unthinkable reality that God would dwell with his people, but that very real understanding that you couldn't go there that there was separation, that you only went to God through the prescribed mediators, through the offerings, and through the priests. And unless you were the high priest, on one day a year, only one man could go into the presence of God. Now that veil has been torn, and quite literally, the way to God has been opened, not through a physical curtain, but through the author of Hebrews writes, the veil of his flesh. The idea that we have access to God. What else do we see? We saw that the resurrection of Christ brought a resurrection from the dead. That little phrase in Matthew that says, as he was resurrected, the bodies of the saints were raised and they went into the city and appeared to many. And we want more information on that. But what we're given is enough to understand that the life of Christ gives life to his people. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the down payment, the sure promise that the resurrection of his people is still a future reality. And finally, we saw that the cross of Christ reconciled men to God. That thief on the cross, the centurion that declares, surely this was the Son of God. Those women who faithfully serve the needs of Christ so that he can carry out his ministry, these are not the people that the world would choose to be the eyewitnesses to the most significant event in human history. These are the outcasts. These are the others. These are the ones that should not have been included in those kingdom promises, and yet they are the ones that we see demonstrate remarkable faith from the very beginning. That tangible reminder that Jesus Christ came to save the other, the outcast, and the sinner. That it's not the religious, it's not the self-righteous that inherit the kingdom. Who is it? It's the meek. It's the poor in spirit. It's the ones who come with childlike faith who are totally dependent on God to do what they know that they themselves never could. 
And today we're going to look at the burial of Jesus Christ. It's a part of the story that we read through quickly, uh, usually because we know what's coming. But like Zach said, even in the burial of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit in Matthew's writings, what we see is that God is in and over every single part of this narrative. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 27. Today we're going to finish chapter 27 from verse 57 all the way to verse 66. But I'll read 57 through 61 to set the stage for the first point in where we're going. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. This is what God's word says. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it at his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Let's pray. Lord, we're faced with a tomb. And at least for today, it's a sealed tomb. A symbol of closure, of finality. From the world's perspective, the end of the story. And we are a people who know the end of the story. We know that this is not the end. But Lord, help us to see what you are doing even in the silence of the grave. Because you're not absent. So Lord, we ask today as we come before your word that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things. That along with the psalmist, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might have understanding because on our own, we bring darkness and failure to this. Lord, we are in need of you, not just to see the words, but to see the truth. And then, Lord, we're in need of you to respond rightly to that truth. So we ask that you would not only make us see, but that you would make us obedient. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time together in Christ's name. Amen. On Thursday, September 8th, Queen Elizabeth died. And immediately upon her passing, something called Operation London Bridge went into effect. For the better part of a decade, every detail surrounding the death of the Queen had been laid out. As soon as she died, the right people received the calls and the emails, the high-ranking members of parliament and civil service were informed of the Queen's passing. Flags were immediately lowered to half-staff. Websites were darkened. Anchors on the BBC were instructed to wear particular clothes to make particular announcements. Pilots on British Airways were supposed to announce it at a proper time to their passengers, even if they were in the air. At the appointed time, on the next day, Prince Charles was officially proclaimed the new sovereign. And for the next day, everyone, the day of the Queen's death labeled D-Day, and every day after that for the next 10 days, D-Day plus one, plus two, plus three, every event is scheduled and designed. From the movements of the Queen's coffin in the right way to the right place, to where she lies in state at Westminster Abbey, to her burial at Windsor Castle, it is all going to follow a scheduled plan, and all of that plan has a purpose. It is to give weight and dignity to a remarkable woman. All of this pomp and circumstance is designed to show the world and in fact call the world to feel that they have lived through a historical moment together. The passing of the longest serving monarch in British history. And what we come to today is the death and burial of a different kind of king. 
And unfortunately, sometimes we read through this passage so quickly that we don't see that the planning that went into this far surpasses the planning that goes into the burial of any earthly monarch. What we're going to see today is people who respond to the death of Christ. Certain ones respond in faith, others respond in fear, but behind all of these responses, you see the plan and the foreknowledge of God. The sovereignty of God displayed even in human action and human interaction. And it's a remarkable and encouraging thing that we dare not rush by too quickly. So as we open up here, let's look first at the faithful response to the death of Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand first is that there's some requirements that are in place. We might not be as culturally familiar with them, but there's some requirement and some urgency about what is happening right now. If you open and look at verse 57, it says, when it was evening, and Matthew doesn't just tell us that by way of information, it sets the stage for why things have to happen so quickly and in the order that they do. Uh, we got to stop there because we have to establish the timeline so we understand why it matters. So we know that Jesus was on the cross by about nine in the morning. We know that at about noon, when the sun was at its peak, it, it turned off. <laughs> that there was an unnatural divine darkness that covered the land for a period of three hours. We know that after that three hours, very shortly after that three-hour period, that Christ gives up his spirit and dies. So we're in the mid-afternoon, but it's not just any afternoon. As the evening comes, a new day is starting. We reckon our day is midnight to midnight. A.M. starts at 12.01, and it runs through the next day. Uh, for the Jewish people, their day would end at sunset, and the next day would begin. And this isn't just another evening that's beginning. This is a Sabbath. And this isn't just a Sabbath. This is the Sabbath of a feast day. And the law said that certain things couldn't happen. The law talked about how long a man could hang in his punishment on a tree. The law talked about what you could and could not do on a Sabbath. And in fact, Matthew's going to talk about this in a moment when he calls this the day of preparation. This is a time to prepare to celebrate the way that God commanded you to. Because the Sabbath is this mandated day of rest for God's people. Now, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders had turned that rest into anything but rest. Uh, they had set out rules and regulations and stipulations that turned the rest into a burden. They mandated, you know, how many letters you could write, how many fruits you could stack up, how many steps you could take before it was considered work. And it pressed this weight down on the people rather than lifting a burden from them. That's why Jesus was so harshly criticized. Remember back in Matthew as they're walking through the grain field, plucking the grains on the Sabbath and eating them. That's why he was accused of breaking the Sabbath when he healed on the Sabbath. It wasn't because he broke the law, it was because he ruined their structured man-made regulations. But this was a day of preparation. The idea was that you thought carefully this day and planned ahead this day so that the following day, the Sabbath day, you could rest as God had called you to. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into this day of preparation. There's a sacrifice that has to take place. There are meals that have to take place. There's a gatherings that would have to take place. And when it comes to celebrating not only the Sabbath, but these feast days with people, uh, there were things that made you unfit and unable to do that. One of those things was contact with a dead body. It would make you ritually unclean. You were impure. It is not sinful to prepare a body. It is not sinful to care for the dead, but it did make you unable to participate in the corporate worship of Israel. And that sounds really, really foreign to us. 
But I think sometimes that's because we take God's holiness lightly. We take our approach to God lightly. Understand that the veil is opened and we have been called to enter into the very presence of God with confidence. But God's holiness is a weighty thing. The law really made sure that the people understood that God was other than. That he was separate from everything unclean, from everything fallen, that he is separate from every outworking of the fall, and that includes death. So there's an urgency here. There are things that have to be done before the sun goes down and that Sabbath day starts. But there's also a, a consequence here because whoever deals with the body of Jesus will, by the nature of what they are doing, be unclean and unfit to celebrate the Passover, at least in the way that they were expected to under the law and under the cultural expectations. Now, add to that reality that this is not just the body of a man who had died. This is not just the body of a teacher who had passed away. This is now the body of a condemned criminal sentenced and put to death by Rome. This is the body of a man who has been accused and condemned to blasphemy by the religious leaders of Israel. So whoever takes charge of this body, whoever does something with the physical body of Jesus, if anyone dares to do anything with the physical body of Jesus, there are some serious implications for that action. And so built into this text, before the, we don't even read it, but in the white spaces there is this pressing question, what happens now? Who's going to care for the body of Jesus? And the answer to that question is surprising. At least I'm convinced that it's meant to be. Because who would we expect would come forward? Who should have been there? It shouldn't it have been the disciples? I mean, don't we expect to hear in this that they fled, but now that it's all over, now that Rome has done their thing, now that the religious leaders have had their way, wouldn't we expect that a name, Peter, John, James, Andrew, somebody pops up to come get the body of Jesus, to care for the body? Surely, it's got to be one of those guys, doesn't it? It has to be someone who's followed him, who's loved him, who's worshipped him, who's seen what he's done, but it's not. Instead, what we see is a request, and it's a surprising request from a remarkable source. Look at the rest of verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. It's not a disciple that we know. It's a disciple that we haven't heard of up to this point. And I want to fill in a couple of details that Matthew doesn't give us, but that John's gospel does. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're given his account of the death of Jesus. In John 19, uh, that's where we're told that uh, there's this urgency on the part of the religious leaders to get these men down before the Sabbath, so they ask that the legs of the two criminals be broken. Uh, shattering the leg bones would mean that they couldn't push themselves up to get air, and it would certainly hasten death, and it would be an agonizing death in the process. The legs of the two men next to Jesus are broken. As they go and they inspect, Jesus is already dead. They pierce his side with a spear, which also fulfills prophecy. Even Pilate is shocked that he's already dead, but the death is confirmed. And if you're in John chapter 19, look at verse 38. After these things, after these things, meaning not only all the events of the cross, but after the confirmation that Jesus is in fact dead. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Now, what do you notice there that Matthew didn't mention to us? That he's a disciple, but that he's a secret one. John doesn't mention his wealth, but he does mention 
that this man, although he was a follower of Christ, someone who learned from Christ, someone who understood and acknowledged that certain things were true about Christ, uh, but that he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. If we were to read Mark's gospel, we would hear that he was a respected member of the council. In other words, this is a man with something to lose. This is a man of great wealth, and not only a man of great wealth, but a man of great position. He was esteemed by the Jewish people. And to publicly demonstrate and declare his affiliation with Jesus of Nazareth would have cost him those things. And so he's followed, but he's followed in secret. Because if the Jews ever find out, he'll lose his position, he'll lose his place, and it will certainly cost him at least financially. We can shake our heads at that, but the reality is that that's a fearful thing to lose those things. But what happens? At the death of Jesus, there's no more secrecy. The Lord moves in his heart, and whatever fear was there in his grief, it's overcome, and he goes, and he asks for the body. And you have to understand that to do that would identify him with Jesus. To care for a body was the duty and the burden and the privilege of the family, of the loved ones. It's the family that cared for the dead. It's the family, it's the loved ones that prepared the body for burial. It's the family that mourned the passing. And now this man that had followed in secret is coming before the most powerful man, at least in that area, and he's saying that he will be identified with Jesus and that he will care for him in his death. And right there, John gives us another detail that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I think is worth mentioning because there's another surprising response built into this text. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And unless you're fairly familiar with the Gospels, the name Nicodemus might or might not mean anything to you. But I guarantee you that even if you're not very familiar with the Gospels, you've probably heard this verse right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, that's given to Nicodemus. It's part of that nighttime meeting that is described there. And in John chapter 3, when that's given, Nicodemus is described as a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. At that meeting, Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God. We know that you're a teacher sent by God because otherwise there's no way you could do what you're doing, but Nicodemus has questions. And so he comes to Jesus, but he comes to Jesus at night. And certainly a significant part of that is because that doesn't draw the attention of the other religious leaders. But now in the death of Christ, what happens? The secrecy is over. And a wealthy prominent teacher and ruler of the Jews is now associated with Jesus Christ. And he brings something. He brings a body, uh, spices to prepare the body of Christ and not a small amount. 75 pounds. Some of your Bibles say 100 pounds. There is no great controversy there. Okay? It's Roman pounds were 12 ounces and your translators did the math for you. Either way, the understanding is that this is a lot. This is 75 pounds of expensive stuff to prepare a dead body. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of dignity. It's an act of love. And says, so, so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You can go ahead and flip back to Matthew 27. But understand that two men, two powerful men, two wealthy men, with a lot to lose 
who had at least up to this point only been content to be identified with Jesus in secret are now identified with him publicly in his death. They're willing to be identified with a man who was put to death in the most public, the most humiliating, the most painful way that Rome could envision. They're willing to be identified with a man that the religious leaders publicly showed to be a blasphemer and one who had denigrated the God of Israel. Look at verse 59, back in Matthew chapter 27. And Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Joseph buries Jesus as if he was a member of his own family. This tomb was intended for Joseph and his family. And Jesus is interred as the son of a wealthy man. This scene is deeply moving. Because who else is there? You see these women, once again, these faithful women that were there at the foot of the cross or at least separated at a distance, but they're there. And now we see that they're eyewitnesses to the place of Jesus' burial. Matthew is inserting them at critical points in this narrative as key eyewitnesses for what is happening. But what a beautiful, again, picture of devotion. The day is coming to a close, and they are going to do everything they can to do what is right in the hours that they have left. Remember, the the distances here are not from L.A. to Camarillo and back. These things are measured in yards and not miles, so it all happens fairly quickly. But they are going to be there, and kind of the, the picture here is that they linger as long as possible. It's getting dark again, not because the sun's failed, but because the sun's going down. And the Sabbath is almost on them. And for as long as they can, they sit and they watch. They witness the Lord that they loved put into a tomb and sealed. There's real anguish here. There is heartache here. There is hopelessness here. Because in this moment, it looks for all the world like death won. Because what's the reality here? What's this theological significance to all of this? The reality is that the king has died. Not just any king, but the king that was supposed to be everything that they had hoped for. The king that was supposed to bring them freedom from bondage. And from the world's perspective, from the disciples' perspective, even from the perspective of those people who are faithfully and lovingly dealing with his body here, it looks like a failure. All of this looks like the plan has come completely raveled and completely undone. But what's the reality? We know. We know that it's not. We know that God is working even in the midst of this. There's not a moment, not a detail in all of redemptive history that falls outside of his plan and outside of his control. And how do we know that? We know that because we know what the prophets have written. That 700 years before any of this happened, Isaiah wrote about what would happen, and not only what would happen, but why it would happen. We have read out of Isaiah 53 several times over the last few weeks, and there's a reason for that, because Isaiah talks so clearly, not just, again, about what is going to happen, but because of the theological reality of why it is happening. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we remember those responses of Christ, or really the lack of a response of Christ, even as he is unjustly accused and condemned in those trials. 
Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He is cut off, even words that reflect back to Daniel and what the Messiah would do and the timing of all of that. But more than that, the idea that he is cut off not for his sins, but for the sins of others, the sins of his people. And then Isaiah 53, verse 9. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked, or his grave was assigned with the wicked. Let me ask you this. What happens if nobody claims the body of Jesus? What happens if what logically should happen does happen? What happens if Jesus is like every other condemned criminal that Rome puts to death? Either graphically the body is left there until it rots off or is consumed by scavengers, or he's pulled down and buried in a common grave with other wicked men that nobody would dare associate with. That's the assignment for those who would seek the death of the Christ. But what happens? What do we see? They made or they assigned his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Killed as a criminal, but buried as a wealthy man. How does that happen? Do you understand that that is not something that we would logically expect would happen? Even in that, there's the miraculous providence of God that moves so that two seemingly unrelated things work together purposefully. But he's buried as a wealthy man. Why? Because he had done no violence, Isaiah writes, and there's no deceit in his mouth. You know why Jesus is buried the way that he is? Other than because God ordained it, but because... He was exactly who he said he was because he was sinless because he was not wicked and to assign him a grave with the wicked would not fit with the reality of who he was because on the cross the humiliation of the Christ was over and now he is going to receive even in death the honor that he is due but why do the gospels bother to tell us about a grave when we know that it won't last because even as that stone is rolled into place, even as the faithful mourn, even as everyone around would only see loss and failure, we look back and we are reminded, we are forced to be reminded of the fact that God knows and that God is working. So here we are, face to face with the reality of the death of Jesus. Living a real life, dying a real death. Attested to by any number that the death happened by those who collected his body, by the soldiers that ensured that he was dead, by Pilate who wanted to make sure that he was dead, even by the religious leaders who will affirm that he is dead. We have this historical fact of the death of Jesus Christ, and there are some that respond in faith, but that is not the only response. Now we're going to move on, and we're going to see that there are those who respond to the death of Christ in absolute terror and fear. And the first group, or really the group that we're going to look at is the religious leaders. Somewhat like Joseph and Nicodemus, these are men with something to lose. And as we move into verse 62, there's another shift. It says the next day. So time has passed. And timing is a key thing. The next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together before Pilate. So this is Saturday. This is the Sabbath day. They've had the day to prepare. And this is the day that was supposed to be for celebration. 
And again, not just a Sabbath, but this is a feast day Sabbath. There were a number of things that we would expect to happen, a number of sacrifices, a number of gatherings. This was a time to be with the people of God, to worship the God of Israel who had brought you out. Uh, This is the start of a seven-day feast of unleavened bread, okay? It's not just a day. This is a significant national event, and we would expect them to be highly invested in that. And there is a gathering that happens, but it is something of a surprise because now uh, they are gathered together before Pilate. Remember, these are the guys that didn't even want to be in the presence of Pilate the day before his trial because it might corrupt them. These are the guys who, according to John's gospel, uh, made Pilate come out to them so that they wouldn't be defiled. And remember, you couldn't celebrate the Passover if you're unclean. And there's the feeling, there's the sense that even if you got too close to one of those filthy Gentiles, some of their uncleanness might rub off on you. And here they are, willing to risk corruption and defilement so that they can get in front of Pilate because there is something that they are even more afraid of than missing out on celebrating the Passover. There's something that terrifies them more than not being able to celebrate the feast. And they bring a very particular request to Pilate. Look at verse 63. They said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. We remember how that imposter, Jesus is seen as an imposter, as a fraud, as a deceiver. Don't read over that too fast, because remember what these men have seen. These men have seen how Jesus handles his accusations. These men have seen the fact that they could not get two witnesses to agree that he had done anything wrong. These men have seen the sky turn pitch black during the brightest part of the day. These men who have either seen or heard that the veil in the temple itself was torn, these are men who have felt the earth shake and have seen the rocks split open. They have seen all of that. And still they are convinced in the darkness of their hearts that Jesus was nothing more than a deceiver. Do not miss the strong division that is there in this passage. The centurion sees those same things, those same events. And what's his conclusion? Surely this was the Son of God. And yet here are these men who for their entire lives had been devoted to the study and the practice of the Scriptures, who knew and who had memorized those passages that dealt with Israel's Messiah. These are the ones who were supposed to shepherd the people of God and guide them toward that longing and that expectation for Jesus. And yet they're the ones that miss it so completely. And they say, sir, remember, remember what we told you. We said that after three days, he said, I will rise. Therefore, Pilate, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. What's the surprising thing there? That out of all the people that remember Jesus' promise to be raised again after three days, who's the one that have it right at the forefront of their minds? It's the religious leaders. There is no indication from the text that the disciples held on to that bit of information at all. Now, granted, they could not put together that they had no place in their minds, in their hearts, and in their understanding for a slaughtered Messiah and a resurrected Messiah. They could not reconcile those things. But understand that there is not even a hint that they wondered how that would work. Now, these guys absolutely do not believe that Jesus will rise again on the third day. But you know what they believe? They believed that at least his people would take that seriously. 
their understanding is that just this Jesus was a remarkable man and that those who gave their lives to following him would do everything they could to see this thing through until the end. They didn't know the disciples very well. And their concern isn't that he's going to rise. Their concern is that the disciples are going to steal the body and spread some story about a resurrection. And then they say, that fraud would be worse than the first. The fraud initially is that he is any kind of a king. The fraud initially is that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But now they come to Pilate and they say, if you think that was bad, wait until what's coming if you don't deal with this. Pilate, you thought he was dangerous when he was the king of the Jews. You thought he was dangerous when he was just this rabble-rouser from Nazareth who had a bunch of people following him. Wait until they make him a martyr and a resurrected martyr at that. Pilate, you've got trouble coming if you don't deal with this right now. Then we see the response of Pilate in verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. At this point, Pilate is willing to give them what they ask for. Now, whether he allows them to use his soldiers or whether he is telling them to use their own is kind of up for debate. It doesn't really matter. Pilate's response says, you make that grave as secure as you can. I don't know how Pilate said that. I don't know the intonation. I don't know whether he was genuinely worried. I don't know whether at this point he is frustrated with them. I don't, I don't know. But I do know that it's odd he didn't just say, go make the grave secure, although that in and of itself seems like a ridiculous thing. It's interesting that he says, make it as secure as you can. And I wonder if all, after all that he's seen and heard, after the stories that he's heard about the power of this Jesus, after the fact that he could not see anything of guilt in him, after the dream that his wife had, I wonder if at the back of Pilate's mind was not just a little hint of, well, let's see what does happen. But they do. They make the tomb as secure as they know how. First of all, by sealing the stone. That doesn't mean that they took and they like super glued it into place. It means they placed a seal over the stone so that you would know if it was tampered with. It was an indication that you were not to pass this point, that there was no excuse for entering into this tomb, and to do so would bring severe consequences. In addition to the seal, they place a guard, and now there are soldiers guarding the grave of Christ. And what's happened from their perspective? Well, from the perspective of the religious leaders, they have now put an end to the story of Jesus of Nazareth. They have made sure that he is dead, and they can confirm that. They know that he is there, and that he is in that tomb, and they know that there is no way that anyone is going to be able to go in to get him. But we know that no one has to. This week, a nation heard the announcement that the queen has died. And they mourned. But they also knew that at the moment of her passing, the new king came in. The queen has died. God saved the king. That was the refrain across the United Kingdom this week. Because there's a succession plan in place And one day, all things being equal and carrying on as we would expect, his son will have the same thing happen to him. He will step into the place of his father when he dies. But here we are in Matthew, and the king is dead. 
and there is no succession plan. There is no son, there is no heir, there is no next in line. This was it. This was the hope. This Jesus was the one that all the hopes were pinned to. And as the light fades on that Friday afternoon, so had every plan and every expectation that they had. And still they're there. This is a heartbreaking scene, but this is a beautiful scene of devotion even in hopeless circumstances. And for some, there's fear. Jesus is dead and still they are terrified of what he could do to them even in death. And so the grave is made as secure as they know how. But what about us? What about us sitting here 2,000 years ago? What about us who know the cross and who know the resurrection? Why does the grave matter to us? First of all, I want to be reminded of the real darkness that we see in this passage. Just a couple of things to think about. First of all, we need to understand what real darkness looks like because here are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the men who should have known. These are the men who should have led the chorus of praises as Jesus came into his city during that triumphal entry. These are the people who should have guided and steered the people toward the feet of Jesus Christ in worship. And they have seen everything. They have seen him heal. They have heard him teach. Uh, they have tried in vain to find witnesses against him. They have heard Pilate declare him innocent. They have seen the sky go black. They have seen the veil torn. They have felt the earthquake. They have seen all of these things. And still they refuse to believe. Because from the beginning of the gospel, it has been made clear that what they need is not more information. What they need is a complete heart transformation. They do not need one more piece of evidence to convince them. It's the darkness of their heart that refuses to acknowledge what is absolutely clear. What does that have to do with us? Because I have no doubt that in a congregation of our size, really of any size, and certainly anyone listening or watching online, that there are some there that are just waiting for proof. You like the idea of Jesus, you like the idea of church, but you'll believe when that last question finally gets answered. God, I would believe if you would just do this. God, I would believe if Christians weren't so fill in the blank. And my friends, if that's you, hear me. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. I have no doubt that the God of the universe can answer each and every one of those. Search the scriptures, and the more that you do, the more consistent and encouraging and faithful you will find them. But understand this, what you're missing is not one last bit of information. What you're missing is heart submission and faith. Surrender to Christ. He is everything that he's claimed to be. And while you have today, you have the opportunity to surrender to that God who made you and who reconciles you to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. Repent, turn, give him your life, and then watch that God order your life in a way that only he could. Not for comfort or for ease, that's not what I'm saying, but watch his hand in areas where you couldn't have even imagined seeing it before. And the second thing that we need to be reminded of is the authority of the king. 
that is a central theme in these short verses, because why even go over them? Uh, we are a people of the cross and of the resurrection, and rightly so. We look at the cross and we rejoice in all that it did, the finished work of Christ as he bore the wrath of God. And, and amen, rightly so, we should focus on that. We are a people who are an Easter people, a resurrection Sunday people, and rightly so, as Christ victorious over the grave, as his life brings our life, as his hope, as living hope becomes our living hope. And amen, we are a people who are rightly focused on those things, but in doing so, I'm afraid that we become a people who read through this as if it were nothing, as if this is just a place that Matthew had to put in so that the narrative makes sense somehow. Don't forget that every single detail of this matters. That somehow the Christ, the suffering servant of Yahweh, the promised king of kings, had to be assigned a grave with the wicked, but buried with a rich man. And we see God work every detail out perfectly. How do you prove that his followers didn't steal the body? Well, in his providence, the religious leaders actually set up a testimony to the resurrection. Because in this passage, the ones who hated him did everything necessary to make sure that if Jesus came out of that grave, it would have to be from the inside out and not the outside in. And why do we need that? Because there are some times that hope seems about a million miles away. There are some times when the grave, figuratively, seems about as hard-sealed as it could get. It's not lost on us that this morning we remember September 11th of all days. A morning when if you're not careful, it could look like God was a long way off with those events that happened. It's passages like this that force us to be reconciled with the fact that God is sovereign over every aspect of his creation, that he knows and that he is at work in every piece and in every part. This passage is so full of heartbreak, but it's so full of hope. Because when I am in distress and in despair, the last thing I want to hear and the last thing that my heart is ready to understand is that God is here in the midst of it, and not only here, but that God is moving in this. This forces me to see that that is the case. That as David writes, even though we walk through the valley of, sh of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Not because evil's not real, and not because death isn't a possibility, but because you are with me. It's passages like this that provide the historical reality that sets our hope in the fact that what Paul writes in Romans 8 is true. That he is, in fact, working all things together for the good of those who love him. And what is the good of those who love him? It's not my health, my wealth, my happiness, my friendships, my relationships. It's not any of that. The good that Paul points out is that ultimately I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that this God who holds eternity in his hands will do everything necessary to make that a reality. Now the question is, is that the good that I want or not? Christian, if you're here and you are buried under despair or grief or heartache, pain that I cannot know in detail, I can promise you with every fiber of confidence in my being that the God who was working in the grave can work in the grave of your life. 
and that what he has called us to is faithfulness even in the midst of heartache because he is doing that which is ultimately good for me. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that sometimes what I call good, you don't. That I'm quick to see good and comfort and ease and joy and peace. And I'm quick to forget that good means I look more like you. God, forgive my stubbornness. Forgive our stubbornness as a people and help us to worship you well. Lord, remind us that you are working. Help us to have settled confidence in your sovereignty, not as a theological doctrine from a book in a classroom, but a settled understanding that you are the God who is and who is sovereign over everything, who works in every circumstance and situation, who carries out your perfect will, your will that called us to salvation in the first place, your will that says that we will look like the Son, your will that loves us, that calls us children, let us rejoice in those things when we find little in this life to rejoice in. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.